Uh, this morning, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 1, 2, and 3. Now, as we look at Philippians, 1, uh, Philippians 3, verse 1, Paul opens this section of Philippians by saying this. He says, finally, my brothers, and like a good preacher, from this point on, Paul goes on to write another two chapters. Now, that's like the story of the young boy who was at, um, who was at that really inquisitive stage of his childhood, who began to question everything that was going on around him, and he became intrigued about everything at the church and began to ask his dad questions, you know, like, Dad, what does this mean and what does that mean? And so he asked his dad, why do we stand up sometimes when we sing and sometimes we sit down? And his dad gave a good answer. Then he asked, why do we bow our heads when we pray? His dad gave an answer. And he asked about baptism and the Lord's Supper, all good questions that needed good answers. Um, then he asked his dad, what does the preacher mean during his sermon every week when he says, finally? And he looked at his son, he said, son, absolutely nothing. <laughs> and that's what Paul means, absolutely nothing. Now, it's a good joke, but to Paul's defense, okay, I'll give you, I'll give you a little lesson here. To Paul's defense, in Greek, the term for finally is simply a transitional particle it just moves the train of thought along to the next thing. So it's basically Paul not saying finally as in this is going to be the end. It's just Paul saying and next or and moreover or on to the next thought. So as we read Philippians 1, 2, and 3, keep that in mind, Philippians 3, 1 through 3, because there are two more, two whole chapters left in the book for us to look at. But this is what he says. He says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you is of no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. I want to break this into those three verses and walk through it together with you. Here's the first thing in our text this morning we need to wrap our minds around. Notice that first there is a command to rejoice. There is a command to rejoice. He says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is of no trouble to me and is safe for you. There are three parts to this. Notice first that Paul argues that in his command, it is a command, it is an imperative, that you are to rejoice in the Lord. That is the command. Now, rejoicing has been mentioned all throughout the book of Philippians. All so far in this letter, you've heard in almost every other sentence, Paul has issued this command to rejoice. But this is the first time that he's added the phrase, in the Lord, to it. So there's something significant about this. The reason that we are to rejoice in the Lord is because the Lord is the source and the reason of our rejoicing. That's important. We rejoice in the Lord because He's the source of our rejoicing and He's the reason or cause of our rejoicing. So we rejoice in the Lord because of Him. Now as Christians, we have to understand that the Lord Jesus is the fountain of joy that we must drink from daily in our lives. Jesus is the fountain of joy and we must be sustained by Him. And what he has done for us in the gospel provides the foundation for why we can rejoice. Every joy we experience, hear me, 
Every joy we experience must be traced back to the fountain and foundation of Jesus. That's Paul's point. We rejoice in him and because of him. Rejoice, not generically, we rejoice in the Lord Jesus. He is the foundation and the fountain, the source and the substance of all of our rejoicing. You have to remember that or you'll be rejoicing for nothing or in nothing. Secondly, notice that Paul's point is that, we are, is that we are to rejoice not only in the Lord, but we are to rejoice as the ordinary, that's an important word, we are to rejoice as the ordinary daily habit of our lives. The ordinary daily habit. Now Paul repeats the theme of rejoicing. You have to wonder, like, Paul, why do you write rejoicing in every other sentence in Philippians? Why do you keep mentioning that we need this habit of rejoicing? And the reason is because we're forgetful. We are people who are easily distracted. Our minds go to and fro. As James says, we're tossed like the waves back and forth. And Paul has to reiterate this because we are forgetful people. We will let the cares of this world and the struggles of this life bog us down spiritually such that we will not be in the habit of rejoicing. And I just want to say that rejoicing should be the normal Christian response to everything, no matter what we face, whether that be in sickness or in health, for better or for worse, for richer or poorer, in freedom and in imprisonment. Paul gives the command that we're to rejoice in the Lord in all circumstances. 1 Thessalonians 5, 6 says it this way, rejoice always. Rejoice always in all circumstances, give thanks. This is to be the normal habit. Now, like I said, these commands exist because our natural tendency, if you don't like me talking about you, I'll talk about me, my natural tendency is to move not towards rejoicing, but more towards selfish introspection or towards being maybe bitter or being angry over what I'm facing, or being despondent, or despairing, or becoming uncaring, or unkind, or unhelpful. So the natural tendency isn't that, because of my fleshly desires in nature, I have to be reminded that I'm to rejoice in all circumstances in Jesus. Now, our rejoicing should be as natural as our breathing. It should be as natural as our breathing for the follower of Jesus. But then lastly, notice what Paul says. Rejoicing is not only should be, should be the ordinary daily habit of our lives, but rejoicing is the remedy for many of the spiritual issues we face. Rejoicing is the remedy for many of the spiritual issues that we face. Why do I say that? Look what he says there at the end of, of verse 1. Paul says that rejoicing is safe. Paul says, it doesn't, I don't mind writing these things to you over and over again. I think he's talking about rejoicing, because that's what he reiterates over and over again. And the reason is, is because it's safe. It's safe. It's never harmful. There are some people who might say, well, if you're rejoicing even when you're sick, or rejoicing even when things are down, or rejoicing when things are even bad, then you're just ignoring what's bad. That's not Paul. Paul doesn't ignore what's bad. He's about to get on to a group of people that are being very bad. So rejoicing exists even in the midst of difficult circumstances. It, rejoice, it, it, it exists even in the middle of him being in prison. His point is that rejoicing is safe for you. It's not going to do you spiritual harm. It's like eating broccoli. 
You might not like it sometimes, but it's not going to do you harm. Now, you might go, if I eat copious amounts, I might have gas. That's okay. It's good for you, right? Not good for your neighbors, but good for you. Um, but that's Paul's point here, okay? Here, here it is. Rejoicing is a sign of spiritual health. It's a sign of spiritual health and vitality. It leads us towards better spiritual health. It doesn't lead us away from it. Rejoicing is not only safe, it's the sign of spiritual health and strength. Listen to how the Bible connects rejoicing and strength. Listen to this. this these are two verses you need to put in your back pocket, write on cards, keep in, on your mirror, put them in your car. Listen to what Nehemiah 8.10 says. The joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. That's Jesus again being the source of it and the cause for it. That's my strength. The joy I receive in Jesus is the strength I have. And then listen to Habakkuk. You never read Habakkuk, but there's good stuff there. Listen to what Habakkuk says. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord is my strength. You see how all that's connected? Rejoicing, joy, and strength. That's why it's safe. So as a Christian, if you're struggling, when you're hurting, you need to understand that when you're faced with struggles, heartaches, sorrows, you know those things that naturally bring us down? <clears throat> In those times, the spiritual medicine that you need is the joy of Jesus that looks beyond your immediate circumstances to Christ. You need to rejoice in Jesus. No matter what the world, no matter what in this world befalls you, remember this. Remember, this is the remedy for the issues we face. Let me, let me give you some gospel truth to latch your soul onto when you're facing these things. You have to remember that no matter what befalls you in this world, if you are in Christ Jesus, you are loved, you are adopted, you are welcomed into the Father's presence. You have every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. You are being kept securely in Christ's hand, and He will never let you go. He is interceding at all times, right now, even now, on your behalf, and He will bring you safely home. Jesus has never lost one of His children. The remedy you need is to apply that salve to your circumstances and go, Jesus, just like Job, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, but I will bless your name and rejoice in the God of my salvation. It's the remedy for the things we face. So there's a command to rejoice here in this text. Take that seriously. Secondly, notice that Paul gives a caution against the Judaizers. That might not be something you've ever heard of, but after today you'll know who they are. Okay, a warning against the Judaizers. Look what he says there in verse 2. He says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, and look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, this seems to come out of nowhere, right? Paul is telling you to rejoice and find joy in Jesus, and then he turns and immediately goes after this group of people, and he gives this stern warning, even after he's just told us to rejoice in all circumstances. Now, Paul is angry here. Paul shifts from rejoicing and he goes right into being very upset with this group of people in verse 2. Now, and I want to mention this here. It's important. 
We only see Paul angry in the New Testament in a couple of places. But in all of those places, what is common in each of those instances is that Paul is angry over a real gospel issue. Paul isn't angry because he didn't get a piece of ham at the potluck. Paul is angry over somebody perverting and distorting the truth of the gospel. Like eternity hangs in the balance. He's not upset about his favorite football team losing yesterday. That's okay. He's not upset about that. Paul is upset about gospel issues. He, he doesn't want the gospel to be lost. Now, one of the best examples of this is in Galatians chapter 1. So listen to what Paul says in Galatians. He says to them, he says, I am astonished. He's angry and astonished. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. And then Paul says this, but even if we, Paul says, even if I change my mind, Paul says, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Paul is angry over people who distort the gospel. Like I said, eternity hangs in the balance. Now the same people that he's angry with in Galatians is the same group he's going after here in Philippians uh, chapter 3, verse 2. This group of people is known as the Judaizers. Now let me explain who they are. This group, they were all Jewish, and they claimed to be followers of Jesus, but they taught that Jesus was simply a doorway into Judaism. That's the important feature, okay? That they were teaching that in order to really come to Jesus, you had to also be circumcised and follow the Old Testament law of Moses. So if a Greek, imagine this, you're in Philippi, you grew up Greek, you hear the good news of Jesus, you come to Christ, all by God's grace, and then there's this group of people who are kind of twisting the gospel message and they're saying, well, you're not really in Jesus because you haven't become Jewish. You haven't been circumcised and you haven't follow the dietary laws of the Old Testament. Now this teaching was completely antithetical to the gospel and it was such a threat to every church throughout the world that the churches in Acts actually sent Paul and Barnabas back to Jerusalem so that they could check out what was actually being taught to see if the gospel was real the gospel they received was the real gospel. So if you have your Bibles, let's go on a journey. Everybody go back to Acts 15. This is important. This is why we read all of our Bibles and we connect the dots, okay? Because the Bible was written to all of us together, to real people in real situations, really dealing with issues among local churches. Listen to, Paul, uh, to, to Acts chapter 15. I'm going to begin reading there about these Judaizers. So if you're in Acts 15, say amen. If you're not there, say hold up. Oh, there's just a few hold ups. That's okay. That's all right. Acts 15. All right, we're in, verse, we're in chapter 15, verse 1. Listen, this is important. Connect all of these dots here. He says, but some men, this is Luke writing, he said, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, that's the Christians, the, Jew, the, the, the Gentile Christians, 
And he said, they were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. How about that? It's not Jesus is enough. It's Jesus plus some other things. And then it says, and after that, Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. Paul was like, "Uh -uh, uh-uh, uh-uh, that's not right. Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia, Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles. So here they are, the Gentile Greek believers. And brought great joy to all the brothers. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles, because the rest of the apostles were still in Jerusalem, and the elders. And they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, here are the Judaizers, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. And the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up, the spokesperson of all the apostles, the right-hand man of Jesus, who's not always right, by the way. But Peter stood up, and listen to what he said. Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them. How did God bear witness to them? By giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. You hear that? By giving to them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them having cleansed their hearts by faith. So in Peter's mind, is there any difference between Jewish believers and Gentile believers? Nope. They all heard the gospel. They believed and were saved by the sheer grace of Jesus. They heard the gospel, and how did God prove it? He gave them the Holy Spirit just like he gave to them. God, Jesus didn't stop and say, whoa, before I give them the Holy Spirit, they need to be circumcised and they need to not eat any more bacon. No. God made no distinction among them. And then look, now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Listen to this. But we believe, this is the gospel the apostles heard from Jesus. We believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. So how are the Jewish believers saved in Jerusalem? By the grace of Jesus. How are the Gentile believers saved across Rome? By the grace of Jesus, not by keeping of the law. Now that is important. So here, what Paul says in in Philippians chapter 3 verse 2 is you have to watch out for these people who are sneaking in to steal your freedom and to carry you back into bondage. Watch out for these legalists. Now, Paul, like a good preacher... You don't see this in your English Bibles. He describes this group of people with three words that begin with the letter K. He alliterates them for us. He says, watch out for the kunas, the dogs, the kakos ergomai, the evil workers, and the katatomen, the ones who mutilate the flesh. Now what Paul does is he takes these, these, um, these slogans of the Judaizers and he mocks them. He mocks them. Sometimes Paul gets so angry about the, about the gospel being distorted, that he will literally mock those who don't understand the gospel. This is what he means. When he says, look out for the dogs, 
What he means is he's calling the dogs unclean. Now, the Jews didn't keep dogs as pets like we do. We love our fur babies. But the Jews didn't keep dogs as pets. Dogs were basically scavengers like coyotes and vultures who roamed the streets and ate um, all of the junk. They were a picture of everything unclean. And what the Judaizers did, they would derogatorily call others who didn't follow the Jewish dietary laws or lapsed Jews or Gentiles, they would call them dogs. So this was their phrase. And so what Paul does is he turns that phrase back onto them to say, you're really the ones who are outside of God's promises. You're really the ones who are unclean. Paul says, watch out for them. They're unclean. They don't know Jesus through the gospel. Secondly, Paul says, look out for the evildoers. Now, how did, how did Paul mock them this way? The Judaizers prized the claim. They loved the claim that they were the workers of the law. We keep the law. Therefore, we are good in God's eyes. You are all bad. We are good. They used the phrase works of the law to distinguish themselves from lapsed Jews who didn't keep the law and from pagan Gentiles. So Paul is saying, for all of your focus on the law, you don't actually keep the law. Because the law had one purpose. The law was meant to point to Jesus and show you your need of a Savior. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law for us. So this is what this is what this was Paul's point in Galatians 2. Listen to what Paul says there. He says, and he's speaking to the Judaizers again. He says, We ourselves are Jews by birth. We're not Gentiles. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. You're not saved because you keep the law. You're saved by faith. And then he says, so we also, Paul said, I'm a Jew. I also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. How many people will be justified by works in heaven? This many. Not a single person will be there because they kept the law. Okay? So, instead of keeping the law, which pointed to Christ and receiving him by faith, the Judaizers twisted the law's proper use, and Paul says that you're actually a worker of evil. You're not a, you're not a, you're not a law keeper, you're a law breaker. Because the law would have pointed you to faith in Jesus. And then finally, Paul says, look out for those that mutilate the flesh. Now this was Paul's most scathing rebuke. The word for mutilate, mutilation is a sarcastic term for circumcision. Paul says, basically, um, uh, this, is, this was their most prized possession. So Paul, Elijah actually uses this term in 1 King, Kings to describe the prophets of Baal. If you remember that, that picture there where the prophets of Baal are crying out to Baal and they keep cutting themselves and mutilating their flesh and Elijah mocks them and says, hey, your God might be asleep. Why don't you cry a little louder? Maybe he's using the bathroom. But it came, but that's but Paul then takes that turn and he uses it on them. So Paul takes the greatest source of the, Judea, the Judaizers' pride, which was their circumcision, which was a sign. It was a sign of God's covenant of their covenant relationship with God. But Paul says that they really have no part in God's people. They are not part of the promises that were made to Abraham. They're really outsiders looking in. It is actually the Gentile 
Christians in Philippi who were really and truly recipients of God's grace and covenant through Jesus. And that's where we turn finally. i got ten minutes to wrap this up. Notice finally there's a warning. So there's a, a command to rejoice, a caution, watch out for those people. Keep your eyes out for legalists. And then third, he gives a covenant assurance. A covenant assurance. Look at verse 3. He says, for we are the circumcision. The Philippians, the, the believers in Jesus. We are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Now that Paul is warned against the false gospel, he gives the Philippians assurance of God's favor and blessing. Notice what he says here. There's, there's like four phrases right in a row. I'm going to take them kind of all together. He says, first, we are the circumcision. Some of your translations say the true circumcision, but the word true is not actually in the text. That's supply. It's actually just the, the definite article. We are the circumcision. That's us. We are that. Now, Paul's language could not be any clearer. That's why we read our Old Testaments. The covenant that God gave to Abraham back in Genesis 12 through 17, when you go back and read that, the covenant that God made with Abraham was on the basis of faith. It was on the basis, it said, the Bible says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. It was not till decades later that Abraham was circumcised. So, God, so Abraham's salvation was by faith not based on any circumcision. That came later, okay? So, Paul's argument is that the Philippians were the direct recipients of the covenant given to Abraham and also its promises, not the Judaizers. In fact, this is Paul's central argument to the whole letter of the book of, 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 of Romans. All of Romans is about this. Go read it. Romans 4, in Romans 4... Paul argues that Abraham was justified by faith long before he was circumcised. And Paul understood that those who have faith are the circumcised in heart, not the circumcised in the flesh. Anybody can be circumcised in the flesh, but not everybody's circumcised in heart. That's the difference. Listen to what, um, listen to what it says in Romans uh, chapter 2. He says, for... For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit and not by the law. His praise is not from man, but from God. So true circumcision, why the Philippians are recipients of God's promises, is because true circumcision is of the heart by grace through faith in Christ. And so after Paul gives that full assurance of God's covenant blessing, Paul then moves and gives the signs of the covenant, right? Circumcision was a sign of the old covenant, but it's not the sign of the new covenant. The sign of the new covenant are these distinctives. Look at those three in the text. He says, we worship by the Spirit of God. We glory in Christ Jesus. We put no confidence in the flesh. So all of the new covenant distinctives have nothing to do with food, nothing to do with race, nothing to do with religious ceremonies. That's not the new covenant. The new covenant is this. We worship by the Spirit of God, glory in Christ Jesus, and put no covenant in the flesh. That is the gospel. 
That is the gospel of God's grace in three simple statements. The sign of the new covenant, hear me, the sign of the new covenant is not baptism. That's why you never hear us say that. It's not a sign of the new covenant. It's a picture, but it's not the sign. The sign of the new covenant is the giving of the Holy Spirit to indwell and empower believers. That's why the Bible says if, you, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. It's not if anyone has not been baptized, they don't belong to Jesus. That's not it. It's anyone who has not received the Spirit by faith by coming to Jesus. So the sign of the new covenant is the giving of God's Spirit. It's the hearing of the gospel, and God's Spirit convicts you of your need of Jesus, and then when you, tur then you turn in repentance and faith, you receive the Spirit and are sealed with the Spirit, who in turn transforms your mind and heart towards Jesus. That's what it means. We worship by the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God dwells in us and now focuses our hearts and minds on Jesus. The Spirit shows us the beauty and glory of Jesus and most of all, His sufficiency. All of those who have been born of God and have received the Spirit of God know that Jesus is all you need. I don't need Jesus plus keeping the law. I don't need Jesus plus baptism. I don't need Jesus plus anything else. Jesus is enough. And that's a great place for... Is Jesus not enough? Is he not enough? Do you need something else? What's going to get you through the gates of, king, gates of the glory is not your preacher or your attitude or anything else. It is going to be Jesus. Him alone. It is Jesus. So he is all that we need. We don't need Jesus plus good works, Jesus plus baptism, Jesus plus keeping the law. We only need Jesus. And because Jesus is enough, what does Paul say at the end? Because Jesus is enough, we don't put any confidence in the flesh. None. None. I don't have any confidence in Jacob getting to the finish line on Jacob's terms. Jacob is an idiot. And if Jacob, was, if, Jacob was, if Jacob was tasked with the job of getting himself to glory, Jacob is not getting there. And you're not either. Jesus will get you there. If we don't put any confidence in our flesh, in our abilities, in our performance, in our law-keeping, or in our good works, our salvation is by God's grace from first to last. All of Romans 8 that we read earlier is an exposition of those three new covenant distinctions. It's not about circumcision of the flesh. It's about a circumcision of the heart by the Spirit. It's about treasuring Jesus above all else, about dying to pride, anything in you, that would make you think God looks at you because of something you do or don't do. That's what the Judaizers did. Now, I want to wrap this up right here. Those are the new covenant distinctives. It's not dietary laws. It's not being circumcised. Not keeping the Sabbath. For those that are in Jesus, it's we worship by the Spirit of God who's been given to us when we receive Jesus. We glory in Jesus. He is our boast. He is all that we need. And we walk with Him and we follow Him and we have no confidence in our flesh. That's what it, that's what it means to actually come to Christ. Now one pastor said it this way. I'll conclude with this. This is a quote. He says, The opponents whom Paul attacked were detracting from the soul sufficiency of what Christ had done. In this way, 
And in this way, they were threatening the doctrine of salvation. Those who add to Christ are still with us. Sects like the Mormons who say nice things about Christ, but in fact make membership of their sect the real essential for salvation. And he says, ministers who, whatever their own personal trust in Jesus, yet by their ministry cause people to trust in rites and ceremonies and sacraments. And others who even add to the work of Christ some additional experience of the Holy Spirit as essential for full salvation. He says, similarly, those who corrupt the way of salvation are still with us, especially the pathetic multitude whose confidence is in their own earned merits. And in some way, those who detract from the sole glory of Jesus are still with us. Within the Christian camp, there are, in particular, those who challenge the reality of the incarnation and the resurrection, and those who would find their salvation for each according to the light given to them in all the great world religions. And then he says, to Paul, these things mattered. He insisted that what he preached was the truth, not an insight or a facet of truth. The Christ he preached was the only all-sufficient Savior of sinners, and the, and the gospel he preached, Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone, was the only gospel which ensured acceptance before God and eternal glory. Is that the gospel you have believed? By grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. That's the only gospel that Jesus came to deliver. So this morning in our text, I hope you've taken a long look at that. Remember the command to rejoice in every circumstance. Secondly, remember a caution against those who would detract from the real gospel. Who would try to say the gospel is really about how well you treat people. Or it's how nice you are. If you just do enough nice things, God will accept you. If you just don't do enough bad things, God will accept you. If you, if you just come and get baptized, Jesus will accept you. Or if you just join the church, Jesus will accept you. Paul says, watch out for those people. They don't know the gospel. The gospel is we are saved by the sheer grace of God from first to last. Amen? We put no confidence in the flesh. So if someone says, Jacob, why, how do you know that you're a Christian? How do you, what evidence can you give me? All I have is Jesus said so. And if I'm going to get to glory, it's because he has promised and he has changed my heart and given me his spirit and I glory in Jesus and I have no confidence in me. Jesus is Lord. This morning we have a time of invitation. In a moment I'm going to pray. First, if you don't know Jesus, he is all that you need. Come to him. Secondly, if you're wrestling with all of this, if you're wrestling with your own flesh in this, then die to it. And finally, if you're looking for a church home, we invite you to be a part of ours. Church membership doesn't make you a Christian. It's just a part of being a faithful Christian, but it's not what makes you a Christian. We invite you to be a part. Will you pray? Father, we ask that you would draw near to your people now as we've heard your word. Strengthen us by it. Father, may we glory alone in Jesus. May he be our only hope. And Father, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.